grotto pod. I am in the grotto pod and that's it. It's just us, you guys. Larry's not here. He is in a car somewhere in Texas driving down that lonesome highway. Um, I would feel sorry for him, but you know, it's kind of fun to be on the road by yourself. I think, especially now in the days of podcasts and audiobooks, I myself really enjoy a lot of uh, completely solo time just to revel in those two pursuits. So um, maybe, hey, you're listening to this right now and you're on a drive somewhere. Tell us about it. Tweet to us or email us at, uh, I think it's the grottopod at gmail.com. I don't know, or grottopod at gmail.com. This is how we do it in the professional world of podcasting, guys. We don't even know our, our own email address. Um, okay, but listen, it's going to be fine because I am going to be here today with an awesome woman author, activist named Virgie Tovar. If you don't know Virgie, you should. She's an author and activist. Um, she has a new book coming out in August called You Have the Right to Remain Fat. And it's been getting a lot of really rave reviews, great reviews in Publishers Weekly and Kirkus. And I can't wait to talk to her about lots of things writing related, including writing a weekly column called Take the Cake. I am in awe of people who can write things weekly to be published. People like Vanessa Waugh, who does a um, column for the San Francisco Chronicle. People like Virgie Tovar, who online has to press publish every week and put yourself out there. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm impressed both that you can meet deadlines on a weekly basis and come up with something new every week to write about cogitate on it, get it down, get it into the form necessary to publish, and then have the, just the, I don't know, you know, the cojones to hit publish. Um, yeah, I think it takes a lot of discipline. It also takes a lot of just the will to put yourself out there, which can be a really hard thing and that I'm really interested in talking to Virgie about as well, because in the social media era, it's not easy to be a fat activist on top of being just a woman on the internet. Um, so that's one thing. Another is, um, yeah, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about this daily writing practice thing and having to come up with stuff no matter what. I moved this month about two weeks ago, which for any of you who have moved in, I don't know, within any memory that you have when your parents didn't do it for you, it sucks. It's super hard. I, of course, got sick because the combination of dust plus stress equals terrible respiratory infection. Um, so I was down until pretty recently, um, and I've had a million things going on, running in a million directions, blah, 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 my usual life. But on top of that, like a crazy person, I decided to do Jamie Attenberg's a thousand words of summer hashtag. You can find it on Twitter, which was to write a thousand words every day between, I believe June 19th and the 28th. 29, something like that. Anyway, it was two weeks, 14 days. And, um, why in the midst of all this madness did I decide to do such a thing? Because, uh, I have a book manuscript due and I need to get on it. So I thought, I'm just going to hop on this and I'm going to do a thousand words a day, no matter what. And it was incredible. It was transformational. And I cannot recommend enough just the discipline. I don't know. Discipline makes it sound so harsh maybe a little sexy, but, um, also harsh in not a good way. 
uh, to have to do it. But I remembered what Kirsten Chen said. Remember when she was on and she said that she has a kind of easygoing discipline. She just does the thousand words. So some days I was so busy, but I would just fling stuff down to get a thousand words. And I'm happy to report that I was able to get a thousand words a day. I had um, something over the actual a thousand words a day at the end of 14 days, 14,250, something like that. Um, and besides the fact that that is just hugely satisfying, it made me happy every day so that instead of being filled with self-loathing, which you writers out there know can happen when you're not doing the work and not producing things, especially if you have deadlines out there, instead of having that feeling, I had this feeling of virtuousness and joy actually every single day. And what's more, I drafted four chapters, four. Now they're a hot mess and a complete disaster puddle. Um, but you know what? It doesn't matter because you can't edit what you don't have. So I'm thrilled. I'm psyched. Psyched. Thank you to Jamie Attenberg for coming up with the idea and for sending the most lovely emails every single day to people who had signed up for it. Um, I think you can probably find them if you can just follow either that hashtag a thousand words of summer or maybe follow Jamie uh, Jamie Attenberg on Twitter. Uh, you can find out what those emails had in them. They were written by some really, well, she wrote them, but they um, had advice from some really great writers like um, Ada Limone and Lauren Groff and others. And uh, yeah, it was an awesome way to kick off the summer, summer the summer. Why not the summer? Um, to kick off the summer and to feel like, okay, I'm not filled with despair anymore. I'm filled with hope. And with the possibility of actually getting this thing done and of feeling excited about the project in the boots on the ground way. I was excited about it in that heady um, way where you're thinking, I have all these amazing ideas and it's going to be so awesome. And then the terror and horror and uh, debasement that you feel when you try to make that actualize on the page. Um, I'm over that. Yay. And maybe there's a lesson for that in other kinds of work like activism. Um, ooh, did you catch that segue? I feel like that was Larry Rosen level segue. So uh, yeah, let's talk to Virgie. She's on her way and um I hope we're going to learn a lot, a lot of stuff we need to know about writing, about being big in ourselves in the world, and just fun to sit down and talk to another writer. Okay, stay tuned. Okay, you guys, I'm back. I'm still by myself. Um, I've, I've never done a podcast by myself before. I've always done it with Larry. So I thought I better listen back and make sure it was okay. And it's weird. I'm not going to lie. Sorry, everybody. Um, but mostly I feel like I didn't tell you nearly enough about Virgie Tovar and how awesome she is. Um, I did tell you about her new book coming out in August, You Have the Right to Remain Fat, and about her online column, Take the Cake both of which you can find uh, via Google and either subscribe or follow. Um, but also, I think I need to say that Virgie is the um, respected, well-known, uh, groundbreaking editor of an anthology from Seal Press called Hot and Heavy, Fierce Fat Girls on Life, Love, and Fashion. And that was one of those anthologies that Seal Press does that kind of broke open commentary, awareness, um, I don't know, just, just provided a place for voices to be heard that were not being heard enough, especially in a more mainstream way. I actually had a piece in Seal Press 
in a Steel Press anthology in 1996 called Solo on her own adventure about um, women in the outdoors. And that anthology was, uh, I still hear from people about. So um, kudos to Virgie for uh, Hot and Heavy. I know that's been a, a pretty influential cultural um, milestone, I guess you could say, in terms of bringing um, fat activism to awareness and body positivity, all of that kind of stuff. And also she is the founder, the inventor of the hashtag lose hate, not wait. And, you know, I really want to talk to her about fat being one of the last prejudices that feels kind of ubiquitous. It sort of doesn't matter where you are in society. People feel free to comment or to say things that hopefully, though unfortunately not enough, um, people feel ashamed of saying other kinds of prejudices out loud. Not everywhere, not always, but at least a little bit. But fat's one of those things that it's really hanging in there as a place where people feel emboldened to um, make really unkind comments that are none of their business. So um, yeah, looking forward to talking to her about that um, and to meeting her because I've never met Virgie before. So next time you hear me, I'll be with Virgie Tovar. Virgie, welcome to the Grotto Pod. Thank you. I'm so glad that you dressed appropriately. Yes, I'm wearing a bikini. Um, <laughs> it's like, I'm actually, I've got a full bikini on. I'm just wearing jeans um, just so that I wouldn't distract too many people with my... On the way here. Yes. <laughs> Although this, this is one of the very, very, in my experience, few San Francisco days where you could wear a bikini. Yes. It's warm. It's rare. And I'm enjoying it. I know. And you have to, you have to seize the day in this town for sure. And I have to say, um, in a way it's good because what happens is people come into the grotto pod, this closet that we call a recording studio wearing the typical San Francisco clothing, which is a lot. And then they die. Right. So instead we're both very like sleeveless and airy and hopefully we'll be just fine. Yes. Um, well, you know, I just started, well, I started rambling in my introduction, which is my way. Um, but I said a little bit about your publishing history. I'd like to hear kind of everything, you as a writer, how it all got started. Um, I'm interested in your no- new book, of course, You Have the Right to Remain Fat, but also yes. your Seal Press anthology. I want to hear about like what kind of impact that had. So where would you like to start of all yeah. those things? Well, I mean, I can kind of talk about my writing trajectory yeah. over time. So, um, I mean... The, the anthology was called Hot and Heavy, Fierce Fat Girls on Life, Love, and Fashion. And it came out in 2012, mm-hmm. right as I was finishing up graduate school, um, where I had been researching this topic. I had been researching fatness. At Berkeley? Um, um, no, no, I did my undergrad at Berkeley, and I did my undergrad at Grad. SF State. Oh, wait. Yeah. Sorry, my undergrad at UC Berkeley and my master's degree at SF State okay, got it. in sexuality studies. Um, so I came into the program with an interest in a lot of different things, potentially. There's so many things to study under the umbrella of human sexuality. Yeah. But I got really, <laughs> yes, I got really interested in 
um, fatness, you know, uh-huh. and, and I mean, I grew up a fat person. I'm a fat person. I'm a 250 pound woman. Um, I grew up, um, in a fat family as a fat kid and my fatness had affected so many facets of my life, my sexuality, right. my gender, etc. I ended up getting really interested in trying to uncover how, and specifically I was interested in fat women of color and how race and size had impacted gender trajectory over a lifetime. Really interesting stuff, Super right? Super interesting. I ended up kind of through the research finding this rabbit hole into fat liberation, fat activism. And it was a, it was a movement. So contemporary movement, or yes. you look back in history and we're like, Oh, this was happening. I mean, and it's, it was, because yeah, I remember in seventies, there was that going on. Oh yeah. Even in the sixties. Yeah. I mean, in the sixties, fat liberation, fat activism existed. It was kind yeah. of an, um, an offshoot of um, Jewish lesbian politics. And it was very interesting, like lesbian feminism. Yeah. Um, and so, but what's interesting was the iteration that I was coming into in 2010, 2011 was resolutely queer, not necessarily lesbian. That's interesting. Um, I want to circle back to that. Yes. And it was resolutely run kind of by high femmes, like, you know, femme identified people who were very involved in the practice of femininity and like the, mm-hmm. and the performance of it and the clothing. That's interesting. Yes. Yeah, I so would not I, have predicted that as well, an out, outside the movement, like would not have. Totally. Yeah. yeah. No. And I think in a lot of ways that informed my research, I was like, what is this phenomenon that mm-hmm. like all of the folks who are drawn, all the folks I'm seeing in fat activism for the most part are high femmes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of wondered, I'm like, you know, is there something to be said about the gender piece and the way that fat women right. and fat girls are denied femininity for a very long time? And I mean, I don't think it's fair to reduce everyone's experience to like, oh, you were denied gender expression and therefore you, you know, became this like feminine peacock in adulthood. I think that's really reductive, mm-hmm. but at least for me mm-hmm. and the people I was interviewing, that was their story. Their mm-hmm. story was that they grew up feeling like they were kind of neither a boy nor a girl, but definitely not really a girl. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in adulthood, they were, they found and made the freedom to express themselves in these like highly gendered ways and feminine ways. And so, um, anyway, I was introduced to the fat activism movement and I met all these people who blew my mind, like people who, fat people who were refusing to diet and who were refusing to apologize. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. It just blew my, and it blew my mind because I'd never, it had never even occurred to me that as a fat person, you could choose not to diet. It just right. had not occurred to me. And you were already in graduate school at this point? Yes. Well, okay. That's pretty mind blowing, right? Yeah. No, yeah. I, I had been a feminist already right. for maybe seven years. Right. That's a very interesting topic. Yes. So, um... So, yeah, I mean, once I met all of these incredible people, I was like, I have to introduce the world to these people. Mm -hmm. And so that's how the anthology was birthed. Um, I actually need to go back a little bit in the story and say I got interested in talking about that before I met or was introduced to fat activism um, before grad school. And I actually submitted a manifesto um, proposal to Seal Press back then. And that was probably 2008, 2007. Um, again, I didn't really know anybody who was doing this work, but I wanted to write about it. But it sounds to me like you're already considering yourself a writer. Yes. So I, I definitely I mean, had. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I, I don't know that I had an identity as a writer at the time, right? but I definitely was someone who saw writing as a vehicle that was accessible and that I understood sort of implicitly. Right. 
So um, you kind of always have been a writer, maybe. I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've always loved language. Like, English is always my favorite subject. Mm-hmm. Storytelling I love, right? Um, but... At the time, at the time that I initially submitted that proposal for the manifesto, the single author manifesto, I got um, an email from the editor, the, the managing editor at Seal at the time, Brooke Warner, um, and Brooke said, "Listen, I, your writing is very good. Like you have a very, you have a great voice. Dude, that is huge. Yeah, it's huge. Right yeah. for me, yes. I've never been complimented or gotten encouragement. <laughs> so, and the editor of a press, yes, is telling totally. you that." And a great press. The first anthology yes. I was ever in was Seal Press. Yes. And it was life-changing. Yeah. 1996. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which one? Uh, solo on her own adventure. I love it. Uh, yeah. It was fantastic. And it was, it had, I feel like it had a lot of impact about women in the outdoors and going in the outdoors by yourself and yes. just being a woman alone in the world. Yeah. Um, in a way that, believe it or not, in 1996 was still, it was groundbreaking. I, I mean, still hear so from radical. people about it. Right, exactly. Yeah. So that's why, one of the reasons why I was excited to see your anthology and to hear about it. So yes. Continue. Well, so Seal has has done a lot of incredible work. Yeah, you know? they're amazing. I mean, my, the, my, first, my first ever introduction to feminist literature was cunt which mm-hmm. zeal press put out mm-hmm. um so anyway it's just kind of extraordinary right coming full circle on that um anyway so i approached them they were you know the, brooke was like listen you're you have a great voice i don't know if we have them i don't know if we can reach the market so that's what surprises me yeah like how did they take the leap to thinking they had a market for that book. Well, I mean, and this is, I mean, the matter of time from when that right. proposal got rejected mm-hmm. to the anthology getting accepted was maybe four or five years. When I was in the movement, you know, engaging with people who are my friends and my colleague, you know, my political colleagues or, or whatever, um, I could tell, I could just feel, I could feel feel it, right. that it was about to explode. So what made it explode? Is it social media? Is it Instagram? Is it Twitter? Is it websites? It's a number of things. Social media is a huge part of it. Another big part of it was the way that this newest version of that activism, there was a big fashion component. Oh, right. Um, I mean, I see that on Instagram a lot. Yeah. So that was the that was the the vehicle that was the window into the grand into the greater cultural discourse um where it went from an underground really radical politic um and then people saw right there was a live journal called Thatchinista that oh, it nice. was run by a bunch of queer fat women who were mostly posting outfit pictures because they wanted you know encouragement and and love right. and then also resource sharing because clothing right. was how so to find difficult it, to find how to, right. plus what size. was cute right. yeah and how to alter garments right so it was a resource sharing again very very typical in the queer tradition of resource sharing, um, sharing love, giving compliments and building up your community. Um, so what happened was, you know, that was what it started out as. And then it kind of trickled into the mainstream and the mainstream, this mainstream audience who had no idea these women were queer, who sort of saw just like fat girls in cute, cute outfits. I love that. That's so inspiring. Or I wish I could do that. And I feel, I feel more emboldened because they're doing it. And so there was kind of this mainstream, um, you know, misinterpretation of mm-hmm. what was happening, but that kind of allowed for that entree in from periphery to mainstream. Right. And that's I mean, it's like happened. a lot of queer culture gets co-opted that oh, way. Oh yeah, right? absolutely. 
something about the energy and I just, I don't know how I knew it. I just knew. And I sort of approached Seal Press for the second time and said, listen, I want to do this anthology. You guys want to get in on this. I was kind of, I was a little bit cavalier actually when I approached Two them Two things again. I have to say. <laughs> Approaching them again. That's yes. huge, right? Yes. That's one of the things we have to do. Absolutely. As writers and as women. Absolutely. Go back. Yes. Also, whenever anyone gives you a compliment on your writing, no matter right. what right. is following it, hold on to the... Co- I always think of myself as Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber, and I'm like, so you're saying there's a chance. It's like, you know, it's like maybe more like one in a million. I'm like, so you're saying there's a chance. Um- I love that. <laughs> but, you know, they've done all these studies about... Um, um, Vita, these counts of women being published versus men being published at different yeah. publications. And one of the kind of comebacks from publications sometimes is, well, the thing is we re- we have people submit and when we reject, you know, nine out of 10 men come back yes. and, and do it again and right. query us again. And most women don't. Right. Like that freaks me out. Well, because women, because of sexism, women don't have the wellspring of confidence that men have. Right. And so, we also yeah. think, uh, Instead of hearing this piece actually doesn't suit us, we maybe hear I suck right. and should go die or whatever, yes. I, you know, and or should stop writing. Absolutely. Um, and I just think it's so great that you went back and guess what? Now you have a book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's so, nice. Totally. And so, I mean, and I realized that I felt like very compelled. I felt very compelled to propose an anthology after having proposed a single author um, specifically because this issue at the time was so underground still right. that I felt like it would be much more powerful for people who were reading to hear from 30 people who were all undergoing this extraordinary journey of refusing diet culture and mm-hmm. living life on their terms mm-hmm. than, than hearing one person tell that story. Right. Also because yeah. then people can say like, oh, well, you did it, but I can't. Right, exactly. But that 30 people. Kind of, totally. Harder to deny. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, absolutely. So I feel like anthology was a much more appropriate for the purpose that I mm-hmm. had for the book, which was a political purpose. Right. Um, yeah. And so that book came out in 2012. And before the book even came out, I was getting hired to lecture at universities and do all these kinds of things, which I'm still doing now. And then, you know, me- several years later, it's wild because you have the right to remain fat, which is coming out in August, um, August 14th. And has gotten such good reviews. Yes. It's gotten good reviews. I don't mean to say that as like surprise, but yes. uh, it is something you wait for, are terrified about what a relief and how great for the book. Yes. Right? Agree. Agree. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's wild and interesting on the long journey of being a writer. And I really want to emphasize, right. You have a career, a career that spans 40 years, 50 years, you know, and that's normal and really think of it as a career rather than just maybe a one-off or like, I'm just dying to get this one thing in four years or two years or one year. Um, and so for me, right, this book began in 2007, 2008, that's 10 years later, I think that's what comes into the world. I think that is actually a pretty average trajectory for a book, especially for a first book, Yes, right? That you have the conception, you're working toward it, you have different iterations and you finally land it. Yeah. And so, and I think the thing is as writers, as creatives, we're 
always ahead Mm -hmm. of the culture. Mm -hmm. And so we have to wait a lot of times for the culture and and the culture and our ideas to align. The windows have to be aligned. And a lot of times we're, you know, 10 years, five years ahead of where mainstream culture, that quote unquote market is. And so we have to kind of sit on it. And I think it's one of the things where that's where if you're a creative, if you're somebody who's a right, like you're just, you have to recognize that you're ahead of the curve and accept that there's a cost to that, which is annoying for us. Right. Which is feeling like you're being ignored. Totally. Um, Yeah. But you know, I started writing about women artists in the early nineties and my book came out last yes. year. Right. Right. Like 25, 30 years later. And yes. that sounds depressing, but I got to write and read and teach totally. women artists for 25 years. It didn't suck. It was great. Yes. But yeah, you got to keep, you got to keep at the craft. You got to keep your, you know, your name in front of people and you got to keep working. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Totally. So, that's so what next? Like, story. this is going to come out in August. Yep. And are you touring? Yeah. You, how does one do it? Yes, I'm touring. Um, I'm going, you know, there's a San Francisco book release party on the 14th, and I'm going to LA. August. Oh, so yes, yeah, August 14th, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I'm going to LA. I'm going to New York. I'm doing a thing in Maine, Philly, in New Orleans. It's a lot. Uh, it is a lot. And the yeah. book's coming out in the UK. Um, oh, yeah. What, who, who are some of the other places it's coming out country-wise? I yes. remember seeing that, but I forgot to write it down. Yeah. So it's coming out in the UK under Melville. Uh-huh. Um, and then it's coming out in Brazil. Um, oh, nice. Portuguese, and then it's already out in Spain in Spanish. And how... So you already know how it's going over. Yes. How's that going? It's been great. I so mean, cool. the events have been well attended, the conversation. I mean, I've been having conversations with Spanish, fem- like sp- feminists in Spain um, since the book came out. Like, I just did an interview with a journalist yesterday. And so exciting. Yeah, no, it's it's incredible and that it that it's got that it's hit so much resonance with women all over the West. Um yeah, so And and you you'd said a piece uh you were talking about women of color mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if it's a harder sell for white women than it is for women of color. Yeah, do you think I or do you think it's I don't know. I don't know. I mean, to be honest, um I feel like African American so. culture has been much more accepting of different body types than white culture, including white feminists. Mm. And who knows why that is, but, uh, it's really cool and exciting to see a feminist book that goes across all boundaries, queer, straight, you know, everything. Yeah. Um, can you think of anything else that's like that? Like I was trying to think of it while I was preparing my notes, like what else can everyone get behind? Is there something? (laughs) Right. I don't know. Right. Well, I think to return to kind of um, this, you know, this idea of there being um, different body ideals in different cultures, that's totally true. And also, right, right, I think that there's a lot of... I don't know. There's a lot of, in people of color, women of color traditions, there's a lot of resiliency that's built into Mm -hmm. practice and beauty and, and practices and performance of gender. And so for example, right, like I talked to a lot of women of color, I'm a woman of color, right? So I talked to a lot of women of color and, and a lot of teens of color because I'm actually writing a new book. I've already signed for a new book. Oh my God, that's a big question. Um, Yes. For, for girls of color, 12 to 19 or 12 to 18 rather, um, with New Harbinger, which is like a mental health, Mm -hmm. uh, 
press. Um, so anyway, uh, so I've been talking to increasingly younger girls of color, um, which is fascinating. But, um, but you know, I think there's this myth that fat phobia, diet culture don't affect communities of color, particularly yeah. black communities. And that simply isn't true. It might look really different. Right. Um, it looks really different in white communities than it does in communities of color for various historical reasons. But, um, right, the truth is that, um, it, it, right, like for a woman of color, diet culture might be enveloped really intricately into racism, right? Right, and that she's dealing with racism, right? right. First totally. and foremost, actually, so, it's really yeah. good to hear that and for you to say it like that because mm-hmm. I do think that is uh, something that's living in a lot of people's either unconsciously or consciously. Yes. It's like, oh, black women have got this; like they're right. they're fine, right? No, in exactly. this one place, in this one place, yeah, totally. Um, no, but the but truth that is, mean, right? Yeah, like women of color are taught that white women are the beauty ideal. And if right. you're not white, you're already failing. Right. And then right. like that beauty ideal is already a thin ideal. Right. right. But like, right. 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 I just sort of, I think like it's important to um, complicate that conversation and really get into like, no, it's not that these, like, it's not that these folks who were seeing like killing it and looking cute and wearing tight clothes right. don't have these like emotional anguish moments right. and aren't living with that stress, but it kind of looks differently and, it, and it's sort of packaged differently. Right. Um, but I will, say, Ray, I think um, this issue absolutely touches almost all women, certainly in the West. I think it touches all women in the West. Yeah, Yeah. totally. I mean, there's definitely, I think we all can relate to the fact that we are expected to deny our hunger. We're expected to have a certain, whatever the body ideal, we're expected to meet it. You know? And that body ideal changes, which is so yes. crazy making. Yes, absolutely. Right? So, you know, maybe you were a girl in the fifties and you were supposed to have like, you know, an awesome bust. And then mm-hmm. 10 years later you had to be twiggy. Yes. Like how do you, how do you manage that situation? Like Absolutely. You can't. Well, and I talk about this in the book, right? Where <clears throat> all of these beauty ideals, quote unquote, they're just secondary. They're red herrings, right? right? They're secondary characteristics because what's really being eroticized and award rewarded socially is female submission, right? No matter what the beauty ideal is, it might change from one day to the next because that's not the point. The point is women have to be in line. Women have to be you know, subjugated to a standard that's external to them, to us. Right. Isn't it interesting that also that's one of the most unconscious places, I I mean, in my experience, definitely not across the board, that women, no matter how much you identify with feminism, that you carry with you, right? Yes. Right. You would, you could say like, oh, I'm going to vote this way. I'm going to be an activist this way, but I still want to be a size six. Right. Totally. Or whatever. Yes. Well, and feminism to be fair and honest, mainstream feminism has done a very bad job of talking about this issue from a critical perspective and has not really gone in and done the work as a, as a movement to really interrogate the history of diet culture and the ways in which, um, you know, women's lives are deeply impacted and our spirits are deeply impacted by the demands of diet culture. Right. Um, I wonder, I'm, really excited to hear that you have a book for young women. I have a 16 year old daughter. And one of the things that has actually blown me away in terms of raising her, I was her age. Well, I was her age in the eighties, but was young in the seventies. And in both cases, all I remember hearing is skinny, 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 skinny. And I don't think she's actually heard that message that way. Mm. So I do think maybe there's a little bit of a change. I mean, I'm Mm. amazed when I overhear her friends talking, I've never one time ever heard them talk about food. Like not what I shouldn't eat or I want to be skinny or how do I look? Never. 
And is that growing up in San Francisco? I don't know, mm. but it's a trip. I mean, that was not my experience yes. at all. And, right. um, I was showing her your website today before I left. And I was like, you know, do you have any questions for Virgin? And she was like, Oh, that's really awesome. No, not really. <laughs> yeah. It was like, she was like, Oh, that's great. Like there was no, I, I didn't feel any like fire of recognition or something mm. that I would expect that I would have felt at that age. Mm. I don't know if I'm making any sense. But yeah, totally. Do you feel like there's a change? I mean, I will say it's it's difficult for me to gauge, you know, as an adult person, um, kind of what's going on right now. <laughs> yeah, but I same, will even say, though I have a tiny connection. Yeah. Yes. But I will say one of the big changes I have seen is the language, right? Not, mm-hmm. Maybe not necessarily the attitude, but mm-hmm. like the language has really begun to shift. Like the word yeah. diet, the word oh, thin have started too. to become increasingly taboo. That's true. That's and true. I'm like, as I'm interviewing young women for the, this new book project, um, they're increasingly talking about this in a very different way, but a lot of the core ideas are the same, right? They might use the word health or strong. Right. right. Um, I saw instead that in, of those things. I saw but, that in one, something that you wrote yes. in your column about strong being this, well, a little bit of a red herring too, right? Yes. Or a, 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 a MacGuffin maybe. Like we're not really talking about strong, but sometimes we are, I think. Like mm-hmm. I think my daughter wants to be strong. And by that, yes. I mean, she wants, a, she asked for a punching bag for her birthday, right? Yes. Like it isn't actually about being skinny. I think women my age say strong when they mean skinny, mm. but I wonder if that's what they mean. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, again, it's sort of difficult for me to tell, but like, right. for instance, when I talk to either these young women or I talk to my friends who are in professions where they're working with young women, um, they are finding, they find that common in conversations is, um, this idea of going to the gym to get thick, which blew my mind. I was like, I was like, oh, so, okay, wait, 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 Go to tell, the gym me. To get tell me, um, it came up in an interview recently. <laughs> And I was like, what I don't is this, think I what is this um, And the idea is like swole, you, like what men say. Well, it's like you go to the gym to make your butt bigger. Oh yeah, so yeah, okay. Face like smaller. Oh, um, oh. And so it's still a kind of fetishization of the sure. body. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so I was like, I mean, but it was interesting, right? Because this idea that you would go to the gym to become thick, which I associate thick for me. I associate with like bigger bodied. Right. Um, and so it just kind of blew my mind when they said it. And when I was talking to these professionals who work with them, they're like, oh yeah, that's very common. Like, um, they're called, like, they have these things called waist. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Waist trainers. Trainers. Yeah. That's right. I was like, waist disciplinarians. What are they? Um, <laughs> but it comes out of it. Doesn't it come out of a kind of alternative culture thing, but now it's become more mainstream to make a skinny waist. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, um, you know, I think for sure it's more of, like a woman of color aesthetic. And I think like oh, certainly as the Kardashians right? have yeah. like become, you know, have become really popular and part of the mainstream like aesthetic. Um, I don't know. I, I can't, I can't just give, I can't say it's of just course. the Kardashians. Of course. But, <laughs> but like, of course. Um, but but yeah. like big booty, like how much that is, um, adored mm-hmm. <laughs> in contemporary culture. Yeah. When I was a teenager, I would tie, you know, a, a jacket around my waist so no one saw my butt in case it wasn't tiny enough. Right. Like, there was no concept of that yeah. in my yeah. world. No, totally. And so maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. It's not really a good thing if you have to, like, go to the gym to beat your body into submission to get the big booty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree. I, I mean, I feel like I've noticed just as someone who dates straight... I, I date... I do straight dating in San Francisco, and um, I feel... <laughs> You're like a champion of the world. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, I, um, I noticed that... I, so I, I travel a lot for work and when I'm in other places, 
there is not that same obsession with butts um, as, as there is here. here. That's yeah, and I and I've always sort of thought of it that's as a specific, a specific as a culture that as this San Francisco as a culture that's obsessed with fitness. Yeah, I do right? too. As you become slimmer, your butt gets bigger, right. um, but your breasts might get really small, right. and those are kind of like two right. dominant like right. attraction points, right. focal points. And I've noticed right when I travel almost anywhere else except the coasts. Um, when I'm on Tinder or whatever, they're immediately asking about my breasts. They're like, what, how big are your breasts? I mean, it's, it's rude, of course, right? But it's like, they're, they're fixated on my breasts and here, right. nothing. I mean, I like, okay, I'm, I've had I, this, this is in, so interesting. Yes. Yes. Like nothing. I mean, every man I've dated since I moved here, I mean, I have large breasts, yeah. right? And, um, and they're amazing. And I've always kind Noted. of thought, yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, like I, I've always kind of thought my butt's fine. I don't have like butt negative ideations, but I've, I was like, well, at the end of the day, in like the, in sort of like the heteronormative beauty ideal conversation, I would say my boobs are, you know, like they're up there. Yeah. That's as, like, that's like feature. Definite, definite right? Plus, right. But Across since I moved here, right. not one that single dude I've dated likes my boobs not one they all want to touch my butt they're like obsessed with my butt and but it's fascinating so then i go to arizona right? and everybody's like tell me everything about your boobs okay when there was come? something what i wish like? i could remember this <laughs> something i read that you wrote about cleavage was it like cleavage is power it was something and i it was kind of it was kind of like i had this thrill of like oh wait i could treat my boobs like that i could yeah. be like okay with that yeah because I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. Right? Like, I was kind of psyched. <laughs> yes. Maybe I've just lived in San Francisco too long. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But it's, I'm I mean, I think can't, about my boobs. I don't know. It could be a kawinky dink, <laughs> but I just feel like phenomenologically, it's undeniable when I go yeah. to other regions of the United States, the difference in interest. Yeah. My favorite kind of cultural um, critique involves kawinky dink and phenomenology in the same sentence. <laughs> How I actually want to talk about everything. Yeah, same. That's how I talk about everything. <laughs> That's how I want to talk about everything. Um, I mean, it would be so cool to do a kind of map to, of the world. Yeah. Right? To see, like, what turns people on. Right. And why would that be? Like, why would geography affect that so much? That's kind of a trip when yeah. I think about it. Especially a place like San Francisco where people come from other places. It's not like mm-hmm. this is some homegrown you know, I don't know, focus. Right. So I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. I guess in my mind, it's because of the fitness obsession in San Francisco that like, because, oh, because I gotcha. Right. Like yeah. boobs are just made of fat. Butts are muscle. Oh, you know okay. Yes, yes, so yes, yes, yes. The slimmer okay. a person is, the likelier their butts are. What about in LA, though? They're, they're like fat. super obsessed right. with fitness. I mean, I don't, and I boobs, haven't dated I <laughs> in LA, so I can't speak to LA. Right. But okay. I don't. I don't know. Right. I don't. Okay. Know. Very interesting. Okay. And then um, <laughs> circling back to queer culture. Yeah. So I also, as a straight person, have this concept of queer women, women of being like, oh, they're okay with body image. That seems like not true, untrue. With yeah. I mean, again, it's it's like a little bit. It's different, right? Like I sort of think, right? Again, queer women are dealing with homophobia. They're dealing right. with queerphobia. They're dealing with femphobia potentially. Um, right. Right. Or any right. number of things. Right. And that might be the access through through right. which or the axis through which 
um, these body expectations are coming through, mm-hmm. right? Um, because what 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 I've noticed is people will identify politically with movements that feel like at the forefront of what they're dealing with on a day to day basis, right. and then things Makes will sense. filter through that. Right. Makes so, sense. like if you're a queer person, you're likely dealing with the structural realities of homophobia, right. um, and you're also dealing with the thin ideal and all this stuff, but maybe that's not your primary um, point of political action or your primary point of organizing. However, I will say I have a very, very, very robust queer, like, readership Mm -hmm. um, and following and folks who are, like, you know, avidly reading my stuff and finding a lot of value in it are queer folks. And so I definitely don't think um, that, that this is not an issue for queer folks. I will say... Again, I think relationship and similar to communities of color, queers have done a lot of work to create resiliency and languages of critique to talk about these things. And that's what we might be seeing as, oh, they're totally fine. They've got this. And it's like, no, they're in survival mode and are being forced to come up with with mechanisms that make their life joyful and autonomous in the midst of like so much cultural subjugation. And and it's that resiliency that I think often um, in the context of queer, you know, queer versus straight or whatever, but like this is a lot of times what straight people are looking at and misinterpreting as like confidence dense, quote unquote. I have a big problem with the confidence industrial complex, but like, oh, tell me about that. Well, I mean, I think there's this, I think confidence is kind of like a capitalist term that's rendered and sold to women as a, as a means to become more attractive to men. Um, at the end of the day, that, that confidence, quote unquote, is coming from observing queers, people of color, et cetera, fo- communities that have been under attack for a long time and have developed sophisticated ways of existing and partying and dressing um, as like part of that resistance technique or part of that resiliency. And that is being misunderstood, repackaged and sold to straight women. Um, and so that's kind Can of you what give I, me an example. Yeah. Like I'm not quite following. Yeah. So like confidence is something I grew up learning about confidence mm-hmm. from like Cosmo. Okay. Oh, right. Yeah. Even yeah. as a preteen. Yeah, of course. It, and then also <laughs> I grew up like looking at all these. Now different... I get it immediately. Yes. Get like I, re- I, re- I read all these magazines, all these articles about how men love a confident woman. Here's how to look confident um, in order to get the guy of your dreams. That was how it was kind of packaged to me, even in childhood, like even my preteen years and teenage years. And um, I don't know. I, I don't think that that discourse is altogether gone away. The idea is not that you are, that you have this like internal strength and courage mm-hmm. and are doing things on your term. It's more on terms, but it's more like, um, an idea that you can adopt an affect in order to become attractive to other people. Yes. A hundred percent. That's what it's for. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting because I, my mind immediately went to this place where I find myself feeling so annoyed with the kind of women's advice that comes from other women Yeah. that says, um, stop asking questions in meetings that are this way right. or stop having this weird thing in your voice where you end questions with a question or right. end statements with a question or stop. It's like, stop telling me what to do. Yes. That's what I want. I want you to stop telling me what to do and I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. Okay. Yes. And, um, I mean, even books like very well-meaning books, like lean in. Yeah. My first thought is don't <laughs> tell me what to do. Yes. Like, I hate that. Right. And, 
uh, it is a little bit like um, act more confident so that we'll, all our boats will rise or something. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, A, that's bullshit. Right. B, I don't want to. Right. C, who are you? But also <laughs> like work towards the gender equality and against sex system that's going to create a reality right. where I get to be autonomous and I get to feel act like any me. way I want. Yes, exactly. Right. Don't tell, don't like, <clears throat> don't regulate on my behavior based on this idea that masculinity is the ultimate way to behave in the workplace or anywhere else. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. Or that by somehow working more, that's better. No. I don't want to. I work a ton. And the stuff I want to do. Yeah. So anyway, I digress. That's my way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Something you said reminded me of this awesome thing I read about you. Mm. Um, I don't remember what you said that reminded me of this, but I want to be sure that I mention it. Um, Someone put you in a category of writers I'd wait in line for. And it included J.K. Rowling. What? Roxanne Gay. What? Caitlin Moran. Lindy West. Oh That's a pretty good, That's pretty um, good. little yes. coterie to be in. Wow. So, uh, like, say you get to meet Roxanne Gay or Lindy West or J.K. Rowling, um, and you're like, hey, man, same sentence. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure what any of these women have to do with each other, but yeah. how's that feel? Like, yeah, as I a mean, writer. So said, as a writer, this is the person I would wait in line for. Right. I mean, that's really exciting. And I also, I don't know, I think I'm worth waiting in line for. I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> that's your confidence. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, tell, remind me the press, Feminist Press? Feminist Press. For your new book. Who's the next book with? Um, New Harbinger. And okay. they're also based on Oh, yeah. You told Bay. me that. You yes, told me that. They yeah. do mental health typically literature. And do you have a title yet? Um, I don't know. Tentative. I mean, this is the tentative title, which is like, it's very, I love long titles. I don't know how to be terse. It's like, um, <laughs> I think the long title is like for girls of color who are ready for the body justice revolution or something and oh. friends or something like that. <laughs> and their allies and friends yes. and anybody else who likes it. Yes. <laughs> Go girls. Yay girls. <laughs> Up, rebel, thumbs up. Yes. Um, heart emoji. <laughs> <laughs> I predict a bestseller. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, uh, it's your book, like this one is, but are you going around and interviewing girls? Are you observing? Is it like a sociological perspective? How does how do you, how do you do, how do you write the next book? Yeah. I mean, um, they didn't make any real suggestions around my oh. interviewing girls or anything yeah. like that. They wanted it to be kind of a workbook format, mm-hmm. which I love. Yeah. Very um, cool. But I kind of took it upon myself as someone who hasn't really worked with girls. I resolutely have been working with adult women primarily um, for the entirety of my career around this. Um, so it's a new, it's a differently a departure. And so I wanted to do my sort of due diligence around it. So I've just been, whenever I get an opportunity... I talk to girls. I have meetings with um, practitioners. Like, for example, mm-hmm. next week I have a meeting with... Um, the folks who started the Radical Monarchs, which is an Oakland-based alternative to the Girl Scouts. Um, Yay! Yes! And they do a lot of, like, really cool, like, racial justice, gender justice, like, disability justice stuff. Um, And so I'm talking to them about their framework and what they've learned and observed from working with girls for, you know, a few years. Um, So that's kind of the the breadth of the research and just kind of using... I think the the biggest challenge for me is, um, in general younger girls don't see this issue as a problem. 
they don't, they, maybe they don't have the same level of visibility or like their own you know, ability to see how much pressure they're I, under. I, I can see that. And so for me, there's a little bit of a challenge of I'm like, I have to kind of convince them this is an issue that affects them right. from the outset. Do they know? not think uh, it's an issue because they f- claim to not feel troubled by it? Or mm-hmm. is it just kind of what you were saying before? They have so many other things in front of them to deal right. with. I think it's both. And I mean, I think a big part of it is they've completely been sold that, that they've been sold a naturalized, they, they, essentially they have a naturalized rhetoric around it. They just don't, they think that, that this desire to go to the gym to get thick or whatever is coming <laughs> from them and it ultimately benefits them. Um, which again is like, that's kind of this neoliberal capitalist rendering of that's how capitalism and neoliberalism sells these ideas, right? right? It's like, it's for you. It's to personally improve you and who doesn't want to personally improve. And this right. is like literally so ingrained in the American ideology. It's so difficult for us to see, but this idea that success is an individual pursuit and that every single one of us can make our lives better by personally taking control of our bodies and not politically organizing or or speaking out against injustice, but rather how do we each take on our personal torch and make ourselves as good and great as possible. Um, There's also something a little Calvinist in it, I think, which is very American, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that, you know, you're the blessed and I can Mm -hmm. see you're the blessed because you're skinny. Yes. Right. You must be doing it right. You must be self-actualizing. You must be successful. You must be correct. You must be whatever else. Morally good. Yeah. And totally. And that, that, I mean, I talk about that exact history in this book, right? right? Where I talk about the emergence in the 1800s of wealthy men of influence who are leading up these dietary reform movements where they're Kellogg making this explicit and, yeah. yeah connection between food and morality right. that we now see in our culture um you know 150 years later or whatever um and so i mean it's kind of extraordinary um to I guess it's man, it's been longer than 150 years. Anyway, but like the point <laughs> no, being, time. right? Like these are the grandfathers of what we now see around food morality, the connections between those things and diet culture, and how we understand health as a moral imperative of all American citizens. Right. Although it's such a mixed message, right? Uh, yeah. Like it's, it's like work, 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 work. Be healthy. Work, work. <laughs> like give, give up everything. Give up all your joy in order to accumulate a house. Like all these things, but also make sure that you go running because that's what health looks like. And it's just like no, that's not what health looks like. <laughs> I do. I do feel like um, some of the most trying times in my life have been when, as a woman, I felt like you know what? Why am I expected to be? perfect at all these things, Mm -hmm. my career and as a mother and as a partner and that I'm fit and that I, my eyebrows are done and I have like cute clothes on and my house is clean and that's like endless, endless lists and the level of, um, perfection requirement. Yeah. It's just insane. It has to be, America has to be the one place where this happens. Like I don't think it's places. the only place, but I think we're number one winner in yeah. female oppression. I lived in, <laughs> like in, in the West. Oh yeah. I mean, yes. I lived in Norway for a year when I was, when I was a teenager. And I remember that feeling of just suddenly feeling relaxed mm. like and having not realized I wasn't relaxed. Yes. And that relaxation came from not feeling like I had to be happy, mm. that I had to be skinny, that yes. I had to, all of these things. It was, I had to get into the right school that I had to just like, nobody gave a shit about me. It was yes. awesome. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. I don't know if I still like that. I mean, I remember visiting Vienna a couple of years ago and it blew my mind talking to my friends there. And, you know, they were like, yeah, marriage is 
pretty passe. It's kind of like oh, 19, it's like 1999. God. Who would do that? Norway was it's like that boring. <clears throat> yeah. And I, I also, I mean, I just noticed all these things about how there really wasn't that same level of gender difference just socially. I mean, I yeah. can't speak to their legal system. Um, and I don't know. I'm feeling kind of bad for saying like America is the number one at oppressing women in the West. I don't know if that's fair. I don't, I don't think we need to like hierarchize it or like list it. Well, well the, but the I think there's a specific way in which the United States is obsessed <laughs> with like, and relies upon, uh, relies upon like women's second class citizenship. And to be frank, I was talking about this, um, in an interview yesterday where, um, as a military state, we're always going to be a sexist state because in order to invade other places, we have to feminize them and see them as inferior. And for as long as we're like a robust military state, we're always going to rely upon like female subjugation and the, the ideology that positions femininity and women as inferior. But here's the amazing, and here's the amazing yeah. paradox of a uh, paradox of America is that I also feel like our feminism is really strong and really mm. loud and cool and interesting and, mm diverse and mm. women are doing such cool things on the ground and as activists. And yes. I find that fascinating. There's a lot of levels of America that are like that. Like yes. we also have some kind of energy oh, yeah. that we're willing to take up. Yes. Um, so I love that side and I hate the other side. Yes, totally. <laughs> it's both. Yes. Um, but I do agree that like you only have to look at the current political climate to say, uh, like, is it even changeable? on mm. on the political level mm. <laughs> like uh, mainstream political level like is there anything beyond boots on the ground activism to change things i don't know i'm not saying we shouldn't vote we should vote sure i 100 percent believe that but uh i don't know how what what what, what does it take to change i don't know yeah i mean Tell I, me. for me <laughs> like i mean it's not it's obviously not like a fully robust um plan right i think like on the one hand um I, I'm always a little bit wary of, you know, I, I, people people need tools, people need recommendations, people want advice. Right. That makes total sense. On the one hand, that's great. We all need those things. On the other hand, it's like it's. I just want to be clear. It's not your fault that injustice is happening. It's not your responsibility ultimately to in fix my it opinion, all. To fix like yeah. total oppression and yeah. injustice yeah. that has been you know, passed on for generations. Yeah. But I will say one of the mind shifts that I underwent that really changed my attitude towards the culture was a couple of things. One, like seeing the culture rather than seeing the culture as like a benevolent patriarch dad who just wants to hold you and like, and like make sure you have your best life. Rather seeing the culture as kind of more like a sleazy salesman who wants to sell you all kinds of shit. And you're like, I'll look in your suitcase, but there's probably only two out of the thousand things you have in there that I want, right? And I think for me also, I've been like emboldening people to say, imagine also other, I love metaphors and, and visual, like visualizations, but like imagine the culture is a bank. Right now, the culture is charging you a 60% APR for your credit card, for your line of credit, which is like your existence as a, as a citizen under the state, yeah. right? Um, and I'm saying fight for the 0.06%. Do not settle for Like if you went into a bank and they were like, okay, 60% APR on this credit card, uh, enjoy, sign off, right? Uh, but this is the reality we're living in. And like, what if we switch our ideology or our mentality to like, no, I'm going to fight really hard and live really hard hard with the idea that I owe the culture like 0 0.06, um, not 60. And I think people <laughs> often don't realize how much we're giving. Yeah. And I'm like, is, and rate, like I'm somebody who's like, 
I, there's a lot of value to structures and culture. I love running water. I love cute Gucci sunglasses. I love, right? Like I love lattes. I like bike lanes. Those things are nice. Yeah. Um, but the culture is, is like giving us that stuff, but it's like adding a whole lot of garbage on top and being like, oh, this is part and parcel of you having clean water. You also have to be super, super oppressed. (laughs) And I'm like, no, I'm not going to buy into that. I'm not going to like live my life like that. What I love about reading your writing and talking to you right now also is you're saying all this and saying, or at least putting out and have fun doing it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Wear fun clothes. Yeah. Laugh. Totally. Drink a latte. Yeah. Like that's nice. Like, isn't it kind of a big F you to say like, I'm also just going to enjoy myself. Oh yeah, totally. You know, well, I like yeah, that. Yeah. And that's our human right. You know, I think there's a yeah. lot of, there's a lot of pressure for people who identify as activists to be very sober yeah. all the time. But I yeah. will say, I think I learned from being in queer political scenes for 15 years that fun is political. Like, like any, like, I I really, I I hate that I'm forgetting who said this and I feel like a total dick. You guys Google this, right? Yes. But like they said, you know, um, if there's not dancing at the revolution, there's no point in having the revolution, right? Right. There has to be dancing. There has to be making out. There has to be orgasms. There has to be tiny, tiny bikinis. There have to be chihuahuas wearing hats. There has to (gasps) be. Otherwise this isn't a human revolution, you know, like fun is part of what it means to be alive. I love hearing you say that the biggest fear I have for progressiveness right now Mm. is the scolding culture of Mm. just taking each other down Yeah, instead of being like this and, and right. Yes. And both and, and, and having fun and being upbeat about my own life, what I'm doing, what I'm enjoying, what I'm liking, what I think is worth living and dying for. Yes, totally. Kind of. And it's like, it's for me, it's like, how do we balance how do we kind of balance like this idea that, you know, we do need to be accountable for our ideas and what we're putting out. Right. And on the other hand, we're spiritual you know, beings who are in process that like whatever idea I have now is going to yes. improve in 10 years because I'm committed to the idea improving. I'm committed to being a better person. And if we're not afraid to sometimes make mistakes, mm-hmm. then nothing's going to happen. Yeah. Like maybe I might, I mean, I've said the wrong thing. Oh my God, I've said the wrong thing on the podcast. I've said the wrong thing in yes. life. I've said, I look back on things and think, oh God, I can't believe I was so dumb. Yeah. But you know what? Next time I'm not going to say that. I'm yes. going to do better. And that's how I learned or that's how yes. I transformed. Totally. You, you have, and as writers, my God, if we don't make mistakes, if we don't know we're going to grow, we you can't put anything down. Yeah. Yeah. And how do we, I mean, for me, it's like, how do we, I mean, for me, when I'm watching, seeing, you know, people say things that I don't, maybe they're on the right path, but they're not like, I don't agree with them. And I kind of take a moment rather than reacting immediately, um, I kind of take a moment and I say like, is this an opportunity where I can, um, trust this person's journey? Um, is this a moment where I want to lovingly call them in, right? Like, like, what do I need to do in this moment? And like, how do I be accountable to this person and see their sacredness and their wholeness rather than, um, seeing them as someone who, um, is threatening my idea of like what is right and what is good and all these mm-hmm. kinds of things. It's like, it's a bit, it's a spiritual journey for me for sure. That's very cool. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. Let's, let's end with that. Okay. It's a spiritual journey for sure. Yeah. Wearing bikinis too. And yeah. chihuahuas. Yes. I love chihuahuas. it. Um, 
want to tell me anything about any events you have in August? Because this will be up. People will be ready. Yep. Ready so to see you, hear you, buy happening. your book. Yes, on August 14th at the Bindery in the Heat. Such a fun location. Yeah, so come to that. And then two days later on the 16th, I'll be in L.A. at Skylight. And Excellent then a few location. days later, I'll be in New York at Blue Stockings. And then in September, I'll be in Maine um, at Quill, which is a, a queer-owned bookstore um, near Portland. And I'll be in Philly and, um, and, and in New Orleans in October at a, a small plus-size boutique called Jackie Blue. Um, so fun. Yes, but please buy my book. It's called You Have the Right to Remain Fat. You can buy it anywhere like Amazon or feministpress.org. And what's your website so people can look up your events should they not have had a pen next to you? Yes, it's virgitovar.com. V-I-R-G-I-E-T-O-V-A-R. And I have a weekly column called Take the Cake at ravishly, R-A-V-I-S-H-L-Y.com. I've thoroughly enjoyed reading that. Thank you. I would like to thank our producers, Beth Weingarner. Yay. Isn't she the best? Yes. Uh-huh. And Lori Ann Doyle and Lee Kravitz. And of course, Larry, who's driving across Texas right now. Mm. Good luck, Larry. Um, I'm Bridget Quinn. Obviously, you can follow me at The Quintrist on Instagram and Twitter. And we also want to thank our partners, the San Francisco Public Library. We're doing an event on July 24th with Matthew Zapruder. It's live. Come see us. And Babylon Salon, San Francisco's premier literary series. You can find out about their next live event at BabylonSalon.com. And that's it. Thank you so much for coming. This OMG. was totally fun. OMG. Yeah, yes. totally. And <laughs> last thing I want to say to you and to everyone is to read, write, and just keep working. Mm-hmm.